0: And then the next major book, Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 33, and we shall read verses 1 to 11. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 11. Let us hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your countrymen. And say to them, when I bring the sword against a land, and the people of the land choose one of their men, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land, and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not take warning, and the sword comes, and takes his life his blood will be on his own head since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning his blood will be on his own head if he had taken warning he would have saved himself but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and Takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak, and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways. That wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, But you will be saved yourself. Son of man. Say to the house of Israel. This is what you're saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down. And we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them. As surely as I live. Declares the sovereign Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Amen. We pray that God will be pleased to add his blessing to this reading and to the preaching of his word. From the second letter of Peter, second Peter, almost at the end of the New Testament, and we're reading the opening verses of the third chapter, second Peter, chapter three, reading verses one to nine. The apostle writes, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders. Reminders. To stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your Apostles. First of all you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say where is this coming he promised ever since our fathers died everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water by these waters also The world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men but do not forget this one thing dear friends with the Lord a day is like a thousand years And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Amen. May God bless his holy word. That we would like to make a point, the first Lord's Day evening of each month, to focus in very directly upon the gospel and the message of salvation. In most congregations there may be people who think sincerely that they are Christians but are not yet truly converted. There probably will be some young people who have not yet committed their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are visitors and others always uh, coming into our services and many of them may need to hear the gospel. And we all need to hear it again and again and to be reminded of it. And so we have begun this since the beginning of the year and we're praying that God will use it greatly in the lives of many. And this evening I've chosen for our text the 11th verse of Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33 where God says as surely as I live declares the sovereign Lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live turn turn from your evil ways why will you die O house of Israel and if we wanted to take one phrase from that verse it it would be that haunting question why will you die why will you die doctors Tell me that one thing they fear in someone seriously ill, almost more than anything else, is what we could call a loss of morale. Or as we sometimes say, people lose the will to live. That isn't necessarily a physical thing. And yet it's something that can a very serious physical consequences. Sometimes people just give up hope. They make up their minds that they are not going to get better. That the treatment they are receiving has little prospect of success. Or perhaps even that life isn't worth living. They no longer have the will to live. They no longer expect to live. And very often... What happens is exactly that. And I think we see the, the same phenomenon sometimes in, in people who aren't Christians. They may not be hostile to Christianity, they may not be scornful, mocking people, they may not be very full of themselves, they may simply just have resigned themselves. That the Christian message is not for them. They don't question the value of Christianity for other people, but they just feel that it doesn't apply to them. Perhaps they think that they have committed too many sins. Perhaps they have tried to believe in the past and it didn't work. Perhaps they think it's too late to change. Perhaps they think that they're just not the sort of people to whom these things apply they make excuses but there is in them a resignation an apathy a dull determination to just endure the future they have no hope they have no expectation and for all such the future is bleak we are all growing old and we are all dying we may live on this earth 70, 80, or 90 years, or even more in some cases. But we will all die. That is a grim reality. And the Bible speaks of it as a grim reality. Paul calls it the last enemy. And there's something far worse than physical death, the death of the body. There is what Shakespeare's Hamlet called the dread Of something after death something after death the undiscovered country the unspeakable reality which the Bible calls hell and yet many people around us and perhaps some people this evening all they have to look forward to is growing old and dying and then going to hell forever. And this text this evening speaks to people like that. It marks a new stage in the book, in the ministry of Ezekiel. This prophet has been urging the people to repent. He has been warning them of God's judgment, and the judgment has come. The warning has been fulfilled. Jerusalem has fallen to its enemies. An awful disaster has happened and the people are gripped with hopelessness and pessimism and despair. And if you look at the previous verse, verse 10, here's God's analysis of their mental attitude. This is what you're saying. Our offenses and our sins weigh us down. We are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? They have given up hope. They are despairing. They say it's too late to change. It's too late to have a new life. And God wants to shake them out of this paralysis of unbelief. And perhaps someone here tonight is paralyzed by unbelief. You think, I'm not a Christian. And I'll never be a Christian. And I'll never have this everlasting life. That people talk about. And God comes to you this evening with this question Why will you die? You don't need to die, he says. You may live. And to awaken you to new hope and new life, I want to set before you this evening from this text five reasons from God for not dying. Five reasons from God for not dying. And the first is this, the clarity of God's warning. The clarity of God's warning. Now, warning is a stern sort of word. And when we're giving people warnings, we quite often frown and we shake our finger a mother does not say don't touch the fire darling she says don't touch the fire it'll burn you she looks stern she looks cross is she being stern is she being cruel not at all she's acting in love and kindness she doesn't want to see the little one going near the fire She wants to preserve that child from harm, from injury, from disfigurement. The warning is given to help. It is something totally positive and helpful. And the fact that God warns people about eternal death is proof of God's love. And it shows you how utterly unreasonable unbelievers are when they complain of the passages in the Bible which speak about hell. Would it have been kinder if God had just not mentioned anything about hell? If God hadn't told us about it? If God had just left it for a gigantic surprise after death? The fact that God gives warnings is evidence that He doesn't want people to die. Otherwise, He wouldn't bother warning them. He would just let them go on as they are. The fact that the mother warns her child about the fire is an evidence of her love. And the fact that God warns people. Is an evidence of his love look at what he says in verse 7 son of man I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me in those days people lived in walled cities in which they were safe and enemy armies couldn't reach them couldn't kill them couldn't hurt them while they were inside the walls. But they had to go outside the walls every day to do their work, to till their farms, to look after their animals, to go to the well, to carry on their daily business. So they were outside the walls and they were unsafe. And what every city did was to build a great big high watchtower on the edge of the wall. And it would be the job of one man in the city to go up to the top of the watchtower every day and see all round the horizon. And if he saw anyone coming, he would shout or blow the trumpet. And all the people outside would come flooding in inside the city walls where they were to be safe. His task was to sound the alarm. There's an enemy coming. And if the people listened to him, they were safe. If they didn't listen, they died, and it was their own fault. And God says to his servant, you are a bit like that watchman. I want you to tell people that they're going to die. And they're going to face judgment. And they're going to go to hell. And the reason I'm asking you to do this is so that they won't die. So that they won't die. Why will you die? That very warning means that you don't need to die. God isn't a sadist. God is not reminding you that you're going to die so that he can gloat and laugh and rub it in. He's not laughing at us and mocking us and saying, ha ha, you're going to die. He's doing it in love. I'm warning you so that you don't have to die. And all that God gives us is his clear warning. We are not left to stumble on blindly over the cliffs of time. Into the abyss of hell. God has put up warning notices. Danger notices. That's one reason for not dying. The clarity of God's warning. Here's a second reason. The wonder of God's pleasure. The wonder of God's pleasure. As you think about it this evening, you think, well, how would God feel if I were to die and go to hell? How would God feel? Would he care? Perhaps he would be glad. Since I am a sinful person and and God is so holy. Well, we don't need to guess. We don't need to speculate because God tells us exactly how he feels. And here's what he says. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's the word of God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in people going to hell. He takes no pleasure in people dying in their sins. He doesn't want them to die. He would rather they would live. Because he goes on to tell us what does give him pleasure but rather that they turn from their ways and live. My God in heaven, the perfect, almighty, holy God, living in the blessedness and glory of heaven, surrounded by his angels, worshipped and praised and honored, he tells us what gives him pleasure. There is something that can happen on earth that gives God pleasure and it's when a really wicked person repents and believes and receives eternal life in fact Jesus says there is joy in the presence of the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents the wonder the wonder of God's pleasure. I take no pleasure. In the death of the wicked. Sometimes we see or hear about wicked people. And there are many wicked people. There are many wicked people. In our own province. And they have done evil. Terrible evil. We think of those who planted the bomb and Omah. And caused such terrible suffering and carnage. And those are evil people. And they have got away with their evil doing. They haven't been punished yet. And sometimes we think of the fact that they aren't going to get away with it. That they're going to have to stand before God at the day of judgment. And they're going to have to answer for the terrible, terrible thing that they have done. And when we think of that. Sometimes we feel pleasure and we say to ourselves, well, good, it serves them right. But God doesn't. God doesn't. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked now of course there's mystery here because we know that God has chosen some people to everlasting life and he has not chosen others and we know that God can do whatever he wills and I cannot explain to you how we can fully reconcile these truths of Scripture How on the one hand, God's will is done in every detail and in every way, which it is, which it is. And how those who go to hell are vessels predestined beforehand to destruction, which they are. And at the same time, God can say, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But friends, we can't cancel out clear teachings of the Bible simply because we're not able to, to reconcile them perfectly. We read from 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. Here's the second reason for not dying God would prefer you not to die God wants you not to die God has no pleasure in your death he would have pleasure rather in your salvation the third reason for not dying is the security of God's pledge the security of God's pledge it's hard to believe what I've just been saying It's hard to believe that God in heaven can really care about one human being. There are so many millions of us, thousands of millions throughout history. Does God really care so much? Is it really true that the holy God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Can we really believe that he has pleasure, real pleasure? You think of the most wicked person you've ever heard of and ever knew ever know think of the most hard-hearted blasphemous cruel blood-stained wretch you can imagine and god says i have no pleasure in the death of that person but i would have great pleasure if they turned from their ways and lived can we believe that we can because he confirms it to us in this text by a solemn pledge. The text says, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is an oath. This is a vow. This is a sacred promise taken in a court of law. As surely as I live, he says. And the purpose of this promise is, is to guarantee the truth of what God is saying. To emphasize that he means it, that he stands behind it. It is like a guarantee. God in his grace strengthens our weak faith by this promise. He calls himself to witness. He uses his own name, his own being, his own life. He says, I swear I promise." On my honour, by my name, by everything that is holy, as surely as I live, on this you can count. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. God promises that. How can we doubt the sworn promise of the Lord? I have pleasure in people living. That's why we should live. That's why we shouldn't die because God doesn't have pleasure in people dying. He has pleasure in people living. Isn't that a tremendous thought when when you're praying for friends of yours who are not Christians? Wouldn't this be a great promise to take in prayer? Lord God, you have said in your word As surely as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from their way and live. And then say, Lord, I'm pleading with you to do that in which you have said you have pleasure. I'm not asking you to do something you don't want to do. I'm pleading with you to give yourself pleasure. Pleasure. The security of God's pledge. Fourthly, there is the simplicity of God's command. The simplicity of God's command. A man was once asked, how do you feel about growing old? And he said, well, I prefer it to the alternative. And yet we may feel that there isn't much of an alternative our bodies will die and surely everything else that is part of us but the good news of the gospel is that there is an alternative God has provided it in His son God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him here it is should not perish but have everlasting life. And how then can we find this everlasting life? How can we live and not die? Very simply, God's command to us in this verse is simple, turn. We all know, I hope we all know what turning means. It means to go in the opposite direction. You're going in the wrong direction. You turn round and go in the opposite direction. If you're not a Christian, this is what God says you must do. You must turn. You have to turn your whole life round. You have to change your whole attitude. You have to change your belief, you have to change your emotions, you have to change your desires. You may not have read the Bible now, you're to turn towards the Bible. You may have known little of prayer. Now God says you're to start praying. You're to worship God where before you didn't. You're to turn away from sin. You're to turn towards the Savior. You're to trust in Christ that they may turn from their ways and live. That's all you have to do. Turn. Turn round. Turn away from sin. And turn towards God. Turn. Turn. And live. But you may say well. That's a. That's a silly thing to say. Because I can't. I can't turn myself. I can't. Turn my life round. I can't. Change myself inside. And I say to you. Don't you worry about that. Don't you worry about that. Just, Just forget about that. Once Jesus said something. Which seemed. Utterly. Ridiculous. He looked at a paralysed man and he said, get up and walk. Now, supposing that paralysed man had started arguing, he said, what do you mean get up and walk? I can't walk, I've been, that's, that's why I'm here, I've been lying in this bed completely paralysed and I can't move, and he couldn't move. And yet Jesus said, get up and walk. He told him to do something that he couldn't do. So what did he do? He did it. As soon as he heard the words, he tried to get up. And he found he could walk. Because when Jesus spoke to that man, there was a transfer of power and ability. In the very command of Christ. And the command gave the ability to obey it. Or an even more ridiculous occasion was when he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus And called to a man who had been dead for three days And said Lazarus come out What a stupid thing to do And Lazarus came out Because there was life giving power In the very call of Christ And when the person responded in faith And didn't start worrying. The paralyzed man didn't start saying, well, wait a minute, what have I learned about human inability? Uh, What's theoretically possible here? He didn't do that. He heard the call of Christ and he obeyed. And he found that he had a power that he'd never had. An ability that he'd never had. God says to you, turn. And if you listen to that call of Christ and try to turn, you'll be able to. He'll help you. There is power in that command. It's not hopeless. He has provided a way to live. The simplicity of God's command. The clarity of God's warning. The wonder of God's pleasure. The security of God's pledge. The simplicity of God's command. And lastly, there is the pathos of God's pleading. The pathos of God's pleading. Think of someone whom you really love. Or someone whom you really respect. Now supposing that person came up to you and said, Now look, called you by name and said I want to have a serious talk with you and you sat down together and they put their hand on your shoulder and looked at you and there was tears in their eyes and they, they, they looked into your eyes and they said you know how much I love you and there's something very very important I want to tell you you would listen I hope you would listen We take seriously when somebody pleads with us. And here in this text, God himself is pleading. I thought a long time about whether I should use that word of God about God, but I have to use it because he is doing it in this text. He's actually pleading with us. He's pleading with us. That's his condescension and his greatness and his glory and his compassion God isn't pride God just doesn't sit up on his throne and say well here's the deal take it or leave it he pleads with us you remember the the prodigal son and the the father and then the older brother the older brother wasn't going to come in and he was angry cross and what did the father do the old father went out and pleaded with him put his hand on the shoulder he said son you're ever with me all that I have is yours but it's right to to make merry and be glad come on in son he he pleaded with him and that's what this text is saying why will you die he's not asking for reasons He's not saying, give me a logical account of the reasons why you want to die. He's pleading. Pleading. That's what we do with our children. We might first of all say, don't do this. Then we might say, I don't want you to do this. But at the end we would say, son, why are you doing this? Here's the king getting down from his throne and asking the rebel to come and be forgiven here's the father and he sees this dirty rascal of a son on the horizon and even though he's an old man he lifts up his robes round his knees and runs through the village but he was yet a great way off his father saw him and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Here's the, the father asking the prodigal to come back home. This is the amazing grace of God. Now don't under, don't misunderstand me. God is not soft. God is not weak. He has no pleasure in the death of any. But that does not mean that in the end he will let people off. He will not. He will not. He cannot do that. And if you don't turn, you must die and you will die. But tonight, tonight, God is asking you to turn. God is pleading with you to turn. God is asking you, why will you die? Do you want to die? How would you answer Do you want to die? Do you want to go to hell? Do you want to be separated from all your Christian friends forever? Do you want to spend an eternity in torment? Is that what you want? Would you rather die than trust Jesus? Surely not. Here tonight, God offers life. He offers forgiveness. He himself urges you to receive it. Why will you die? Supposing you don't believe. How will you face God on the day of judgment? He said I came to you that night in that church building. And I urged you. I sent my servant to urge you. To believe. To turn and to live. May we all hear God's loving voice. As surely as I live. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Amen. Let us pray. Father, how infinitely kind and gracious and patient you are. That we should sit here tonight and hear such a message from your very throne. When we deserve to hear all of us depart from me into everlasting fire. But Lord you have given us an opportunity. An opportunity which many people in this earth will never receive. A very special privilege an invitation to come to Christ and trust in him and live. How wicked it would be for any of us to go away refusing to trust Christ, spurning your offer and abusing your love. Lord, you are also the righteous and holy judge who will by no means Fear the guilty. Help us then to hear your word of grace, that we may never have to hear the word of terrible judgment. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.